I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. When I sat down with Vince Oletti at a small wood table in the main room of his storied East Village apartment, I joked with him that I was glad to be in good hands that day. He's been writing and reporting on culture for over 50 years. He was the first person to write about disco for Rolling Stone in the early 70s. He worked as a senior editor for The Village Voice for over 20 years and was photo critic at The New Yorker until 2016. We started talking about when he first began to write about photographers, where, when interested in someone's work, he was curious about what made them tick, how it went about their life, and how they made it all work. I guess, you know, a lot of it had to do at that point with knowing Peter Hujar as a friend um, and knowing his the amount of great work that he was doing but how difficult it was for him to make a living. Uh, and and being very conscious of, you know, that as a, as a problem for an artist, uh, that it wasn't just, you know, one show after another. It was what do you do in between those shows and what do you do when you haven't sold a thing from that show? What did he do? He struggled. <laughs> <laughs> he, off, you know, he did commercial work when he could. He did... Uh, really interesting, you know, uh, editorial and advertising work when he could. Um, but that was often few and far between. And, and uh, you know, I realized through him that that the life of a working photographer was not something that, you know, where everything came easily. Mm-hmm. And there were long stretches between shows. It made me very conscious of... A photographer as a working professional, mm-hmm. uh, not just as some uh, elevated artist, but as somebody who really had to struggle to to get their work out into the world in one way or another. I'm interested in the like the psychological aspect of making work and it maybe not being recognized. One thing is selling pictures and making a living. The other thing is kind of how do you how do you sustain yourself in your head in terms of your worth from, uh-huh. show, from show to show. Right. Was there a lot of that that you saw in him also that he had to contend with? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, I mean, Peter was unique in in his psychology, so I don't assume that everyone went through the same kind of drama. But, um, but I knew that, you know, talking to a number of different photographers, that it really was, you know, it could be a struggle. And, and everyone had a way... Pretty much everyone I spoke to had another job mm-hmm. besides, you know, being a photographer. Or they were just out of school and, you know, they weren't quite settled in a job. But it was never something that they could assume that they could make a living by selling prints or doing books or whatever. Right. Uh, I mean, that wasn't my main concern when I was talking to them, but it was always sort of in the back of my mind. But what I really wanted to know was why you do what you do. Right. You know, where did these pictures come from? How did you get into writing in the first place? I went to Antioch. I mean, my major was lit, mm-hmm. which, you know, leads to nothing. <laughs> uh, but I figured, I always thought I could be a writer. And so it was really the only, you know, seemed, seemed like a possible goal. And when I was in, in college, I wrote about music. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the paper, I just wrote about what I liked, things I heard on the radio, 
And one of the, another Antioch friend, uh, after we graduated, recommended me to this underground paper, The Rat, and didn't really get paid. I don't think I got paid anything, but I got to go to places. You know, I got to be a sort of working critic mm-hmm. uh, and see a lot of things that I wanted, wanted to see, from James Brown at the Apollo to Crosby, Stills, and Nash at Madison Square Garden. And so I just got into writing about what I like to write about. So you had that curiosity, but how did you think about early on about kind of making a life of it, almost in, in the same way that you were curious about other photographers? Yeah. I didn't really think too much about that. My apartment at that time was $125 a month. Mm-hmm. I often had to borrow money from my mother to pay for it. I was working at a bookstore. It kind of paid me enough to get by. It didn't matter that I wasn't getting paid right away uh, for writing. Uh, I just it was great to be able to actually do it. Once I was writing for places like Rolling Stone, then it became conceivable that I could actually make a living doing that. And again, because at the time, this is like mid-60s, early 70s, it didn't cost a lot to live in New York. At one point in there, I had a job at Columbia Records, Mm -hmm. my first real paying job. Uh, I worked at the in the Columbia Records publicity department writing bios. But mostly I was a freelancer for a good number of years. Mm-hmm. And then you got a full-time position at the Village Voice? I wasn't at the Village Voice as an editor until like late 80s, and maybe 85 or 86. I was writing and editing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the only real full-time job there is as an editor. So you brought in Peter Sheldahl. Peter was already there. Peter was already there. Peter was already the main art critic at The Voice when I was when I was made art editor. I'd already been the editor of the calendar section, Mm -hmm. what was called the centerfold for a long time, and then I was made art editor while Peter was still the main critic. Kim Levin was the secondary critic, and I brought in. Jerry Saltz, mm-hmm. when Peter left for The New Yorker. You've talked ab- about learning a lot from those guys about how to approach art, how to look at art. What, what did they teach you? That I'm not sure that I ever said anything like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I, I must have read that in uh, another interview. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not sure that I would... <laughs> Because I don't know that, that that either of them taught me to look at art. Mm-hmm. I think I was already pretty good at that. Mm-hmm. Both of them taught me a lot about writing. I mean, I wouldn't have been an editor had I not already worked with a number of really terrific editors, uh, mainly Bob Criscow and Richard Goldstein at The Voice. I was a writer. They edited me. Uh, I really learned how to edit myself through working with them. And so it was a pleasure to work with other writers once I was able, you know, confident enough to do that. And to work with writers who really had ideas, really had a style, really had a way of approaching what they did. So certainly I know, you know, I could never write about art the way either Sheldahl or Saltz 
do. I, uh, I can't quite imagine writing about the abstraction of art. Mm-hmm. Um, learning through them how to talk about abstract material and to talk about art in a, in a way that relates so much to you know, your own psychology or your own life or the history of, of art uh, was instructive. Mm-hmm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to ask you about where we're sitting right now, because okay. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty much one of them, probably one of the most unbelievable places in New York. Uh, we're sitting here in your, I mean, do you even delineate the rooms anymore? Is it all the, just, does well, it all just are, flow through? <laughs> there are seven rooms. Yeah. The The New Yorker described this as my dining room. Uh-huh. You know, this is a, it's like one large living room. As far as I'm concerned, I do occasionally eat, food at this table mm-hmm. uh yeah it's all you know it all in a sense one large storage unit at this point <laughs> uh, but we're sitting here surrounded by um bookshelves that are filled to the brims piles of books and magazines everywhere prints on the walls the collecting thing was it always there did were you always into oh, kind of yeah you know when you're in college as i was antioch has a had a work study program so there was no way to really accumulate very much when you're shifting constantly from campus to jobs um so it wasn't until i graduated that i really started collecting again uh and you know along the way i might have held on to a few things but they were mostly pieces of paper rather than a lot of physical stuff uh, so when I landed in New York after college, then I was really able to start holding on to things, mostly records at that point, because mm-hmm. I qu- fairly quickly started, you know, writing about music and then getting records from record companies. But also, I've always bought books, I've always bought magazines, and I tend to hold on to them once I have them. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, when I moved here, I had very little furniture. I never had a sofa. I never had like a lot of adult furniture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had this round wooden table. You never had a sofa. I never had a sofa. I had two beds. Uh, so if anybody wanted to relax, they could you know lie back on the bed. But mostly, I didn't have a lot of. You know, social life was usually out. Mm-hmm. I felt like when I bought a sofa, I was an adult. Uh-huh. And that wasn't until I was here for at least five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, because chairs are perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, moving into this enormous apartment with very little was the ultimate luxury. It, it took a long time to fill it up. Mm-hmm. But now it's like beyond capacity. You know, I'm looking around at all the pictures on your wall. You mm-hmm. live you live with so much. I'm curious, which pictures have been holding your attention lately? Which ones have you been going back to? There's almost a ten I feel like there's a tendency that when you live with certain things, they kind of fade. Fade into the background. Yeah. Are there certain works or pictures that you that continuously catch your eye? Sure. Uh but I do tend to move things around. Um, not so much the pictures that are hanging on the walls, but the pictures that are propped up, you know, on top of mantles or or bookcases get changed a lot mm-hmm. because I do feel like I stop seeing them. Mm-hmm. The mantelpiece gets changed really pretty regularly. 
mm-hmm. uh, usually with something new, something that I've just framed or something that, that just came into my collection one way or another, mm-hmm. uh, or with you know a group of things that I hadn't looked at in a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are things that I forget about that I have up on my wall that every once in a while I grab my interest again. I do tend to look at, at things again and again. And and often, if someone comes in and comments on something, then, you know, it's kind of, again, grabs my attention in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's always interesting to me to see what people mention and or how often people don't say anything at all. A big part of what you've collected and you just you just alluded to a little bit was um was magazines and uh, i, I want to ask you more about peter hujar uh, one thing you guys would do is you would cut is you would look at a lot of magazines together right photo magazines but also harper's bazaar look i would always buy fashion magazines mm-hmm. and peter was a great critic of or at least he i always liked his eye mm-hmm. and peter was always a very interesting and unexpected uh viewer of those kinds of things so i i would have always looked at the magazine before he saw it with me and it was always interesting to me what he stopped at and looked at and noted and commented on Mm -hmm. Um, so he was a you know a major influence in that way it just didn't it isn't that i always agreed with him uh, but it was interesting to me always to see what it was that he picked out Mm -hmm. How did you and Peter Hujar meet in the first place? Peter was the boyfriend of a friend of mine uh, who I worked with when I was working at Columbia Records, a guy named Jim Forrett. He was what was known at that time as the company freak at Columbia, like the, the guy who knew rock and roll people and could sort of be the liaison between the corporate and the the performers. And he and Peter Hujar started going out. And since I was hanging out with Jim, I ended up hanging out with the two of them for a while. And that's how I met Peter. Mm -hmm. This is like 1969. So you guys became good friends and um, you looked at a lot of stuff together. You also, I mean, he photographed you many times. I'm curious what it was like to sit for him. I really only sat for him once. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Which is the portrait that's in Portraits of Portraits Life, Life and Death, right? And I'm sorry that I never took notes on that because the it's the experience kind of evaporated pretty quickly. Yeah, I just remember Peter's intensity. Uh, he was very focused. I don't remember him talking a lot. Uh, I just remember him, you know, kind of being patient, uh, being very focused on on. You know, just me just sitting there, not, I don't remember going through a lot of different poses with him. Mm-hmm. Isn't it like he, I don't remember him saying, you know, stand up and go over there, or, you know, do this or do that. Uh, he kind of waited for me to get comfortable and also then to let down my guard, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is his way generally of, you know, just sort of waiting people out until they, stopped putting on their camera face mm-hmm. uh, and um but i don't really remember much of the detail of that 
Maybe other times, I really thought that was the only time he took my picture. I was sort of reminded later that he took my picture with other friends in formal sessions. And then the Morgan put together this reel of images from his contact sheets uh, that I was surprised to see how many pictures of me were included that I didn't remember being taken. Pictures of me on the street and other kind of just more casual situations. Mm -hmm. So they weren't like sittings. They were snapshots, mm -hmm. more likely. Uh, and those were just, you know, taken in passing. There's also, I think, the one that I remember of you in a dress and on Fire Island. So, yeah. <laughs> a picture that I had hoped would just <laughs> never be public. Why? It's good. <laughs> no, I'm glad that people like it. I feel like I look like an Appalachian housewife in <laughs> oh that picture. <laughs> it's never, I mean, I don't mind being seen in a dress. It was not my dress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was, uh, it belonged to, the, the other guy in the picture was Peter's boyfriend at the time, a guy named Billy Rafford, mm -hmm. who did a lot of gender fuck performance stuff. And I'm sure he, those, the dresses that we were wearing mm -hmm. were things that he had brought with him out to Fire Island for one reason or another. And, uh, and I'm sure we were also naked under those dresses because we were just like hanging out. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that that is, it's true. It's another picture I keep forgetting about or, or repressing. I <laughs> did, didn't expect it to make it into the Who Jar show <laughs> at the Morgan, but now it's traveling. <laughs> did you go to Fire Island a lot when, when you were... No, I, it, it was always a trek. Mm -hmm. I went out maybe five or six times with Peter mm -hmm. because he often rented with a friend a house on the the bay uh, in this little community called Oakleyville, mm -hmm. uh, which is like nowhere. Very quiet. I mean, really sweet and quiet, and but with uh, no electricity, no indoor plumbing. Mm -hmm. So very primitive, but kind of magical. It wasn't like being in any kind of, you know, the kind of social life of, of Fire Island. Uh, we would walk to Cherry Grove because it was the nearest community, but that felt like too civilized in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, later when I was working in record business, uh, my boss had a house in the Pines that was really, you know, like one of those great houses on the beach in the Pines. Uh, but still, I probably went there like five times altogether. Mm -hmm. Fire Island was never really my scene mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what was exactly but... <laughs> I'm Jordan Weitzman and you're listening to my conversation with Vince Aletti that we recorded at his apartment in the East Village in New York Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Your latest book, um, Issues, that you put out with Fiden, is made up of a very personal selection of fashion photography throughout its history in the magazines. What were you trying to communicate with the book? A lot of my point was fashion magazines have been a great vehicle for photographers since photography started appearing in magazines, and not just fashion photography. Uh, the magazines were really really saw themselves as sophisticated, cultural, um, and covering a kind of broad range of the arts. So they published a lot of photography that had nothing to do with fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that was a lot of what I wanted to talk about in the book, that just sort of to give a, a better sense of, of why those magazines are important. Uh, because they've always had this sense of the sort of mission of bringing the uh, coverage of the culture to their audience. Mm -hmm. Do you look at fashion photography in the same way that you might look at fine art photography? Yes. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Is it the same things that move you? Very much so. Yeah? You know, the great fashion photography is dealing with portraiture, for mm -hmm. one thing, uh, dealing with the culture kind of at large, and dealing with all kinds of, you know, issues of aesthetics that are, even if the idea is sort of ephemeral and very much about that moment, I think that's part of why fashion photography is exciting, is that it is dealing with this ephemeral moment. Uh, it doesn't need to be timeless. Uh, I don't think any, you know, all great photography is timeless. It really is about the moment that it's happening in. Um, and I think there have been, you know, extraordinary fashion photographers, most of whom don't just do fashion. Mm -hmm. So part of my, you know, interest in doing this book was to talk about all of them as portrait artists, as, you know, reportage, as the sort of things that, that all photographers or many photographers sort of branch out into. What makes a great picture for you? Oh, well, a lot of things. Spirit, mm -hmm. for one thing, soulfulness, a sense of connection between the photographer and his subject, especially if the subject is a, another human being. Mm -hmm. uh, this, you know, a kind of liveliness and a kind of attention to bringing out the personality or the spirit of the person in the picture. Or, you know, or if it's an object or a landscape or whatever, of delving into that as deeply as possible. Or I guess, you know, on some level, it's seeing things really clearly or seeing things very idiosyncratically. My favorite pictures are images that no one else could have taken except that photographer at that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think, you know, it's a lot about making a connection, um, not necessarily a human connection, but that's usually what I respond to. I mean, I'm really much more interested in portraiture and pictures of people than I'm, I am in anything else. Do you still follow a lot of what's going on today in fashion? Oh, of course. Yeah? The last magazine in my book 
was on the newsstand when I wrote about it. Hmm. So, and that was a lot my point. I wanted to to convey the idea that this is not a historical thing that stopped at some point. It's an ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are still great magazines. There are still great photographers. Uh, and um, I'm, you know, intensely interested in what's going on now. I buy everything. With the book, a lot of my reason for doing it, again, was to put fashion magazines into uh, a place that I think they belong uh, in the culture, that uh, because of a lot of the editors of those magazines over the years have seen them as vehicles for all kinds of, you know, art expression and art. You know, and at the same time, they tend to get dismissed as frivolous, uh, something that only belongs to that moment. Uh, Why do you think that is? Because it's fashion. People don't have no real interest in fashion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or no, I should say, people have no real understanding of fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they just see it as something, you know, uh, for women, mm-hmm. for one thing. I mean, the other thing that I was very conscious of doing in my book was to include a lot of men's magazines of fashion mm-hmm. uh, and kind of open up that that idea that I think a lot of the most interesting fashion magazines are uh, directed at men mm-hmm. and have been, in a lot of ways, at least recently, more radical and more uh, queer than a lot of the women's magazines. Mm-hmm. So they've been doing you know really interesting things with photography and graphics and art and all kinds of stuff. But uh, I do think that people tend to dismiss fashion just out of hand without really thinking about it. I'm always surprised at museums uh, that don't collect fashion material because it's, in, in retrospect especially, there's no question that early Horst and Beaton and Avedon and Penn is really important terms of the history of seeing people mm-hmm. uh, and the history of photography and I think a lot of museums now understand that but they don't see that that's also a reason to collect Stephen Meisel for instance mm-hmm. or Stephen Klein or you know the other people I just mentioned and I think that's exactly the reason why they should be collected the same people who you know would collect photojournalism I mean, for me fashion is another area where we're dealing with immediacy and the importance of the the passing moment mm-hmm. which I think is you know a lot of what photography is about do you think it has to do with um, that photography is often appreciated I mean I guess traditionally as this thing which is almost the ultimate semblance to reality and there's something about the more overtly artificial construction of fashion uh, right. images might throw certain curators and people off? There was that period not that long ago when so many photographers were dealing with constructed images. Philip Lorca de Corsia. Jeff Wall. Yeah, Greg Crudson. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially they were doing what fashion magazine, fashion photographers have always done. Mm-hmm. You know, setting up fictions, setting up scenes, and photographing them, um, and and that was really 
you know, at that moment. And I think, you know, it's not so much a, that moment seems to have passed in a certain way, uh, the constructed image, but, but it always, it struck me at that point that here was this, you know, wide acceptance and interest in this body of work in these number, you know, number of really good photographers. And yet still, it was very easy for a lot of people to dismiss fashion for exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really seemed this odd contradiction at that point where all these great photographers were making constructed images and, and, and doing exactly what fashion photographers have done for ages. Mm -hmm. One of the people I include in my book a number of times is Cindy Sherman, Mm-hmm. Uh, who did a, you know a lot of work that's fed into fashion and then kind of actually did fashion photos mm-hmm. uh, that were great that are great. When does fashion photography fall flat? When does it not work? When it's boring, <laughs> uh, because it often can be. Uh-huh. There is a lot of uninteresting, repetitive, uncreative fashion photography out there mm-hmm. you know there's always been bad photography mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and when fashion photography is bad it can be particularly annoying <laughs> uh, but I think you know that doesn't mean that there isn't at the same time this incredible creativity going on so uh, when did you start to think about what was being presented as fashion photography in relation to what was being shown as art photography there are a lot of times I went out to galleries on yeah. a Saturday and saw, you know, 20 to 30 shows. And a few of them were fine. Mm-hmm. Some of them were great. Uh, a lot of them were really not even worth walking in the door. Right. And then I'd come home and open a fashion magazine and really get excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, it was a little frustrating for me because... It was something that was, in a way, a private pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like something I could call very many friends, uh, you know, up and say, "Look at this new Luamo Vogue" or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, there could be a fashion magazine with five great stories that were better than anything I saw in the galleries that day. So, which really was the impetus to do Carol Squires and I did a show together at ICP uh, in 2009 that we ended up calling Weird Beauty. Yeah. A show about contemporary fashion photography that really was in a way the a lot of the thinking in, that went into that show uh, was one of the had a lot to do with me doing the book issues. Because it was all about work that was new. We didn't go back any further than three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we looked at magazines. Uh, because that is that is really where fashion photography is found. You really, if we looked at galleries, we wouldn't have seen anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was important to us in doing that show that we show the magazines. We ended up tearing up magazines and putting tear sheets on the wall mm-hmm. um, of at least you know fifty different magazines, and that was really had a lot to do with my thinking about how to how to present fashion photography. You know, fashion photography is not Dovima and the elephants 
a single image. Mm -hmm. It's that image was part of like at least 20 pages. So it's like in the context of the magazine. Yeah. Yeah. That it was important for us to, to show those, you know, all the pictures, the current pictures in the context that they appeared in. And so we showed tear sheets, you know, like five or six in a row. So you could see the sequence and also everything else that went along with right. it, the graphic design, the, exactly. the, yeah, the, the type. the uh -huh. yeah. That it was important to see the, really everything about the magazine, the physicality of the magazine. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, you know, again, had a lot to do with my thinking about how fashion is seen because, you know, if, if it does get into a museum or a gallery, you're seeing it in a frame on the wall. And uh, and we did include a number of framed images, but only when you know we included pictures that we had already used as tear sheets. So that if you're seeing a framed image, you're also seeing the context in the magazine uh, alongside that. And uh, anyway, it was a lot of me, uh, both of us thinking, you know, fashion does not exist image by image, it exists as a sequence and it exists on the page mm -hmm. for the most part. And that that's really, and we are also very conscious of showing material that most of the people who came into ICP would not have seen mm -hmm. unless they were going through European fashion magazines as obsessively as we were. What you're, what you're describing is a pretty particular photographic idea. I mean, the book form in photography, uh -huh. it almost operates under the same principle. It's it's not about like a single image, but it's you know images in concert in sequence. Right. That kind of tell the story. It's exactly. I mean, that had thinking about you know books as uh, uh, all the things that make up a book, the sequencing, the you know the typeface, topography, quality of the reproduction, everything, all the all that came into play when I was writing about magazines mm -hmm. think about how a magazine works from page to page so that was it was really influential for me to think about all those issues mm -hmm. so was that show that you put on 2009 was that a, was that a big inspiration for the book yes book? yeah I, I thinking back on it yes it was I mean it was it was a way for me to really it, it just influenced a lot my way of thinking about magazines mm -hmm. and the importance of of the context uh, and that there was, if I was going to do a book about magazines and I've been thinking about that for a long time, it had to show as much as possible the way, you know, pictures work on the page and not just one spread, but as many as possible. Mm -hmm. I guess it's also who works on the page, who thinks at, on the page. It's really clear to me looking at Abaddon and Penn for both of them, working at Vogue or, or Bazaar was their first real, like, extended job. Mm -hmm. So they both learned how to make work for the page. And that's, especially with Penn. In what sense? How to make it fit. Uh -huh. How to make it really have the maximum impact in that scale, in you know, with one image after the other, they they probably did not get to decide what came first and what came second, mm -hmm. but they learned how to make something 
that worked in that space mm-hmm. on in that format. And you think it was them as opposed to, uh, let's say, an editor? Well, they certainly, you know, working with uh, the art directors that they worked, Abaddon with Brodovich, right. uh, Penn with uh, Alex Lieberman. Um, they they learned a lot from working with those guys, but uh, I think they also ta- taught those guys how to see as well uh, by, you know, making incredible images. But it, they really especially with Penn. I mean, you can see it throughout his career when he was work- he was working at Vogue until the end. You know, he knew how to make a picture that that had the maximum Im- impact on a page, even if the page had shrunk, mm-hmm. you know, a lot since he first started working. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that still life stuff he did at, at Vogue, you know, in, the, in his later years are just, every picture is amazing. You talked a bit about, you know, before about going to see 20, 30 shows on a Saturday and being moved by maybe a few of them. Uh-huh. Would you always choose to review the ones that moved you or would you ever, like, or would you ever have like a negative impetus? Sometimes. The preference was to write about shows that I would recommend. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and the same at The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was less, you know, reason to write about a show. Uh, I, I would never write about a show that I just didn't think was any good, mm-hmm. except if it was a major artist mm-hmm. who sort of could not be ignored, uh, and uh, or you know the, the kind of show that just had to be covered. Mm-hmm. Which there aren't that many of those kinds of things, but it's usually. If somebody important does a show that I think, you know, is less than what they could be, I, I would occasionally, you know, write negative reviews. Right, because they're so big. In the because media. they can't be ignored, essentially. Or, right. And because, you know, and, I mean, perversely, I got the most comments about things, about negative reviews. People uh-huh. love negative reviews. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's funny that, I mean, people love to hate on certain things. Right. <laughs> but I get the feeling that just by virtue of how much you're surrounded by, and that there is so much good to be seen, that it's almost like um, that's what's worth focusing on. Yeah. Forget about the bad stuff. Yeah. Because who cares about it? There's always going to be bad stuff. Uh-huh. Certainly in, in the format that I was writing in, the the idea was that you were recommending something mm-hmm. they were choices they were recommendations on some level um, and if you know there was really it'd be better especially when you have very little space and very only a few choices a week um, as I did at the New Yorker I didn't want to use the space to you know to put something down mm-hmm. or even to talk about something that wasn't worth sending somebody to yeah and there were always at least three or four shows that i thought were worth talking about and worth seeing and discussing yeah aside from reviewing shows do you ever go through phases where you kind of do get a bit more negative on certain things and it's it's kind of like oh you know where where is the good stuff uh-huh. or is the excitement pervasive is it, is it there, always there? there's always something good there's always something you you always feel there's something yeah good. there's yeah. always something good Sometimes it may just be one thing. 
it's rare that there's less than, you know, four or five exciting shows for, for me to tell somebody to go see. Yeah. But, I mean, there are times when I've gotten discouraged by, you know, what seemed like very samey kind of things, people doing the same thing again, or I'm trying to think, think of a good example recently. I did get really tired of kind of constructed photography. Mm-hmm. I think it, you know, it ran its course, and and at a certain point, it really just started looking tired. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one area that I tend to kind of avoid, and but most people seem to have sort of moved away from that anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those sort of constructed fictions, it just seems like it seems like an old fashioned idea at this mm-hmm. point. Too much strategy, maybe. I don't know. It yeah. just looks played out so that's something i tended to avoid or or sort of slag off mm-hmm. um, but there's, there's not very much of that around anymore anyway it's been a real pleasure um thanks for having me here of course thank you that was my conversation with vince Aletti that we recorded in new york this episode is produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and it was edited by Crystal Duham. Music in this episode by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.